Hello and welcome to the Intentional Soul, the home for the highly functioning spiritual types out in the world. It is here that we look at the world and ourselves through the lens of higher consciousness, connecting deeply to who and what we really are. Now, my name is Tom Ross, spiritual teacher, healer, spiritual nonconformist, and I am your host for these conversations. On the Intentional Soul, we hear not only from me, but from people who are living intentionally, openly, and authentically in their world. We'll hear their stories of personal transformation while sharing best practices and tactics to help you get the most out of this game called life. Now, nothing is off limits as we seek to expand ourselves and our awareness and live, ultimately, our most authentic lives. Let's dive in. All right, with me today is Ron Blake. Ron is a director and a board member at the American PTSD Association. Ron's a survivor. He's an advocate and a TEDx presenter. He has a unique perspective and an innovative approach to his own healing. And most of all, he's taken a stand for those who suffer from PTSD. Uh, Ron, thank you so much for joining us on The Intentional Soul. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. Awesome. I think if, if I, I don't know if you, if you've moved, but I think we're both, uh, we're both Phoenix natives. Is that, is that correct? I, well, yeah, I didn't grow up here. I've been here for a while, but I, I was born in uh, Gary, Indiana and grew up in the Chicago suburbs most of my life. And um, I've been here a long time in Phoenix though. Yep. And uh, if I, if I recall seeing, I think you're uh, Indiana university, if I say IUB mode, going to know what that means, but Indiana university, Bloomington alum as well. Is that correct? Yes, I did graduate from there. All right. I got a lot. Of, I, got, I got high hopes for uh, for the season this year. So we'll see what happens. Tell us here, uh, Ron, a little bit about yourself and uh, and and your background. What what brings you to where you are right now? Well, I mean, I could just have that brief background, too, before the trauma that I went through. But I did grow up, yes, uh, in northwest Indiana, just I call it the toughest steel neighborhoods, just adjacent to southeast Chicago very blue collar. And that's really always, you know, you're never going to take the blue collar out of me, even though I have an MPA from Indiana University. Um, it's just it's sort of a mentality that people have when you grow up in those those neighborhoods. So, I mean, that's always going to be home for me. That's where most of my family and friends live. I have four siblings. Um, three of them live back there. My sister lives in San Diego. Uh, my parents are still back there. I'm a big Cubs fan and a, <laughs> you're either a Cubs or a Sox fan back there. And then I like the Bears and the Bulls and the Blackhawks. But let me get to um, why I'm here today. I mean, because I'm going to discuss a trauma and then um, hopefully take people sort of on this hero's journey of how I've been recovering and, and hopefully inspire others to go out in their own hero's journey. But the trauma for me, it happened almost 12 years ago. It honestly, if you talk to trauma survivors, and I'm sure you do, it seems like it happened yesterday. And I just, I was talking to an expert that deals with PTSD out of uh, Wayne State in Mich uh, Detroit, Michigan today. And, you know, he said those memories, they never leave you. They, they stay right next to you. So the trauma does feel honestly like it happened yesterday, but it was 12 years ago. Three men came into my downtown Phoenix loft on the seventh floor. I was stripped naked. I was held down. I was beaten. And I was raped. They did a lot of horrific stuff to me in, in, in between. And uh, I did make a 911 call while that was happening. So there's actually a transcript. Um, somebody heard the rape live, uh, a 911 dispatcher. So sometimes when people don't want to hear my vantage point, you can read what she was hearing, which really 
brings me to the second wave of the trauma that I went through that all the respond, there were four responding officers that stayed on the scene. There were eight total is what we were told that arrived. Um, you're talking about a 600 square foot loft though, very tiny. So when they arrived, again, that second part of the trauma happened to me. They categorically dismissed that rape that night. Um, and I, I got confirmation of this from the Phoenix police. They said, listen, our four responding officers dismissed your rape because you're a gay man. And it was very clear to them that that's what happened. So again, it wasn't just the rape. It was that that betrayal, the, the two betrayals there. And I say betrayal and the rape because the, I knew all three men. And, and sometimes I don't know why that surprises people. I think it's over 70 or 75% of rape survivors we know are perpetrators. Um, so it's not somebody jumping out of a bush wearing a mask like you see in the 1950s movies. This is, these are people, you know, there's somebody, it's terrifying because there's somebody like, it could be a teacher, it could be a friend, it could be a neighbor, it could be a coworker. And um, so, and, and one of those people had been my domestic partner of almost eight years to that point. They were all drunk. And I know oftentimes when you go through a trauma like I did with sexual or domestic violence, people think, you know, well, it's usually going to be fueled by um, sometimes the drugs and alcohol. And in this case, it was fueled by the alcohol. Um, so that was just really tough for me to know these are people I know and they're doing this to me. And it didn't matter. I wrote a piece for one of my editors called It All Goes Dark for Halloween. It was a, it was a spooky story, very Stephen King-like. And people asked me, they said, where'd you get the muse for that? This is a horrifying story you wrote for Halloween. And I said, it's actually the rape I went through. But I just changed it to an outdoor setting. And in that story I wrote, I shared how all three of these guys were like shapeshifters. I didn't know who they were. I just thought, I know them, but I'm not sure I do know who they are. And they, you know, it's, it's that, I think it's a mythological um, creature. Just they're called shapeshifters. They, they just change in front of you. Um, so anyway, that was the terrifying part. That's what, that's, that's, that's what started all my struggles. Um, and I struggled for a long, long time. So that was 12 years ago. Uh, and then you at some point began a, yeah, so 12 years ago and then depression, like, like, like what was occurring before the, the healing process kind of started? Cause I don't think, I don't think for any, any survivor, the thing happens and then all of a sudden, great. Now I'm getting over it is not the, is not the path of trauma. So what was, what was your process? Well, I mean, it, it was a couple of years. I just, um, I didn't know it then. I mean, I didn't know right away. I, I was diagnosed with depression and PTSD. It would be a couple of years later. And, and part of the problem, Tom, a big part of the problem, it was in, it was either 2015 or early 16. I was diagnosed again, not just with the PTSD and depression, I was diagnosed with something called dissociative amnesia. I had no idea what that is. Um, I'm still to this day learning a lot more. Um, like this uh, professor and expert out of Wayne State in Detroit this morning was sharing more about his knowledge about dissociative amnesia and PTSD. But what it is, is um, it was probably just days, if not a week after that rape and the domestic violence I went through, my brain just completely, almost completely shut down the memories of that night. I had no mm. recollection. And if I did, it was very few and far between. One of the best ways I can maybe share with your listeners, 
what that condition is, first of all, it only happens to a little bit less than 1% of all males in our lifetime. Um, so that makes it tough to describe and people to understand. But there was a series, there were a series of movies that Matt Damon was in called The Born Identity, The Born Supremacy. Those series of movies, The Born movies, Jason Bourne, played by Matt Damon, he was diagnosed with the same thing I had, uh, dissociative amnesia. So if that helps listeners, if they want to Google that and find out more about that, the, the series of movies and what that guy's diagnosis was, it's what I had. And that's why in those movies, he was struggling. He's trying to understand his past. He's trying to understand why he's angry, why he's upset. And that's, that was me. For a couple of years, I was very angry. I was very upset. But it was like I didn't know what had happened. And there was a trigger in 2014, May, that it opened up a lot of those memories and it started flooding back. I talked to friends about that. I was just shocked, Tom, that your brain can work in that way. But it's when somebody goes through a severe trauma, again, maybe a little bit less than 1% of the guys out there, when we go through a severe trauma, it will just shut down and we are, we're not able to access that. And it's, it's the way the brain is protecting us. So when I was finally diagnosed, I still struggled. And um, this was in 2015. And then I'll get to the point where the healing began. But it, <laughs> I, it was on November 2nd, 2015. I woke up from a nightmare. Um, I had been going through these nightmares a lot. Um, and on that night, I woke up and I just said, I can't do this anymore. I got the pills out. I had a lot of pain pills. And I said, it's going to end tonight. And I didn't want to die, but I couldn't keep going through that. I couldn't lie to my family and friends and say it was okay. And then if I told them I wasn't okay, it was hurting them. Mm -hmm. So I just, I said to myself, this is it. It ends tonight. And for some reason, when I woke up that night, the television was still on. And every night I'd set the timer. And this apparently was the only night the timer malfunctioned and it stayed on. And so there was something playing on the TV. It was, it was called The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. It's a late night comedy show. Something made me laugh. And it was right before I was going to take any of those pills. And it stopped me. And I know some reporters have asked me over the years, what was the joke that stopped you from suicide that night? What made you laugh? And I said, I don't know. And it really shocks people, whether it's a reporter that asked me or somebody in an, um, in an event that I'm speaking at. And I said, it's not what was coming into me that was the most important thing that night. It was what was leaving me. I found that I could still laugh. In that moment, before I'm going to take all these pills and die by suicide, I, there was still something good left in me. And that was the moment that changed everything. I said, uh, you know, I call it in, in, in a hero's journey, you call it the call to action. And I said that night, I'm going to get on this show someday and I will tell my story of trauma to triumph. I didn't know how I triumph because <laughs> I had a lot of recovery to do, but I had that moment of hope. And that's what I said. And, I, and, and that's what began what I called this hero's journey. What was the process of, of undertaking that hero's journey? So when you told yourself, I'm going to get on the show. I'm going to, I'm going to, to, to make something happen. I have something to live for. Was this already formed in your mind, how you wanted this to happen? Like, like walk us, walk me through the process. And then also um, if you were experiencing 
like what kind of what kind of uh, therapies or or helps were you seeking in that period of time where you had the recollection of what had happened, but 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 between that and the and the suicide attempt, like what were you doing um, or not doing that was attempting to alleviate what you were experiencing? Well, I mean, I did probably five or six months before that night. I finally talked about what had happened to me. I had never spoken to anybody about. I really didn't talk about it. I mean, and so it was May of 2015. So about five or six months prior to that night, I did go on Facebook and I thought this is probably the fastest way to tell everybody. I don't want to tell 150 people that I've gone through this. So I thought I'm going to go to Facebook and I didn't use Facebook very much back then, but I thought this is fast. I I want to just do it quickly. And I didn't know the response I would get. And again, you know, growing up in a very blue collar area, I didn't know it's not something that usually guys are supposed to talk about. So right. I took a huge chance and I posted on Facebook that I was raped and I got a huge response. Um, I'm going to guess there might've been 200 responses from people. They were shocked. They were very, very, very supportive, which was a big deal for me. Um, so yes, people, that was the first time I very truly began any kind of healing And then I did start going to some counseling, but it was hit and miss, you know, and when you're going through like chemotherapy and radiation for cancer, those first six months from what I'm told can be very critical. It's very tough to adjust to the medications, to the treatments. And that was me. I was just learning how to adjust, to talk about this, to start going to counselors, but I was still struggling really badly. And I was, if you will, I was like stage four, you know, they call it stage four cancer. I was at stage four PTSD in that sense. And I, it, it was beating me up pretty badly, even though I did start talking about it. That was the first step, but I had a long, long ways to go. So the event happens, literally there's there for whatever reason, if I don't know if it was an inability to, to, to process it, or you weren't giving yourself space, whatever happens, disassociative amnesia kicks in. There's something festering and metastasizing in your system. Eventually, it, it bubbles up to it bubbles up to to the surface. You become aware again, and then what my hallucination is is what you're saying is is speaking. It was a huge deal. Having the support was a huge deal. You started doing some kind of counseling, but for the volume of information, the volume of trauma that that it existed, it wasn't. It was like it was like throwing a cup of water on a on a raging house fire to a certain extent. Is that is that what I'm understanding? It is. It's it, it's it's a it's a great first start. I mean, you got to you got to throw some water on that fire. Yeah. But um, for me. It was a lot. I mean, it's just so much to take in and the the nightmares could be so pervasive. And and then, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote another story for my editors, it was called um, The Watery Grave. And it was describing this, like um, the, the destructiveness, like if you will, that house fire that was raging within me. And I, I wrote this story because it was about me having this, The Watery Grave was about the story about me having a nightmare. I wake up from the nightmare and I'm relieved and I, I, I go and look at myself in the, the mirror and the bathroom in this story. And I realized I might still be in the nightmare here. I thought I was awake and, and, and I wasn't. And that was that was my struggle that I couldn't tell the difference when I would wake from these nightmares. Was I ever still in the nightmare or was I really awake? And when you get to be and I've talked to other trauma survivors, some of us get to that point when you can't tell the difference between your reality and your nightmares. 
unless somebody's been there, it's, it's, it, there aren't even words. <laughs> even though I tried to write a 700 short, uh, word short story about it, it was the best way I could try to convey that. That's where I was at. You know, that was my raging house fire. And, and when I say I went on this hero's journey, that night with that moment of laughter from that show, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just thought, I think I'm supposed to get on this show. I think this was a moment. You know, I felt like I grew up Catholic. So I thought, I think this is from a higher power. It could have just been a darn big coincidence that my TV malfunctioned at that time. But I said, um, I didn't know how I'd get on the show, but I said, I'm going to get out of my house every day. I'm going to walk up to strangers. I'm going to tell them what happened to me. I'm going to tell them I want to get on the late show. And I'm going to get support from these people. And I was going to carry giant home poster boards. And uh, <laughs> and so when I started doing that in November of 2015, I thought people would just sign their name and say, yep, I heard you tell me your story. I wish you luck. And it would prove to me that I had first gotten out of the house, that I had told my story. I had learned to talk about the trauma and that I had a purpose and that people were getting behind me. So visually, I could see that. And, it, you know, I thought maybe I'll come home and I'll see 25 signatures of some of these names, some of these names. And I could say I did it and I'd go out the next day and then it would build. And somehow I'd figure out how to be invited to the late show. But what had happened is people started putting stories on these boards. And now I've met over eight years, 32,342 strangers that have signed stories of incredible stories of support and triumph in 94 languages with 27 Sharpie marker colors on almost 500 giant foam poster boards. And that's been my hero's journey, you know, and in a nutshell, like that's how I've been going out. That's how I've been helping myself. And, and that's where I met all these people on the journey. And that's what branched out into so many different accomplishments and achievements along the way. Now, was it through that that you became associated with the, uh, with the American uh, Association of PTSD? I did. The founder is Amar Hassani. Um, he's studying to be a doctor and he started this. I want to say he started it maybe six or seven years ago to, to really understand what his uncle, his uncle had, he succumbed to PTSD and he wanted to really understand it better, but to open up some bigger dialogues around the country about it. So um, I met Amir on this journey and um yeah, and I just took a role, and we're Amir and I are just figuring this out as we go. But the good news is, you know, we are getting a lot of good attention about PTSD, and people are messaging back and saying, "Hey, you know, how can I get involved? Or is there something I can do to share my story?" And so um, that is how I met Amir, and that's how I met the American PTSD Association. So when you Begin that the, this process of of stepping out, you know, being out in public, speaking, uh, speaking about your uh, about your um, experience, about your trauma, and then having that, and then having people, you know, sign the boards and express their own trauma or their own support. Was there other modalities that you were engaging with as well? Like, did you stay on on traditional on your uh, on on counseling or on therapies, or was this the only thing that you were doing? Like, what did your what did your overall healing look like as you went through this process over a number of years? The one word I'd use would be matrix. I just <laughs> and another phrase would be uh, trial and error. You know, I I, I use the big matrix approach. Uh, a lot of different things were thrown in there. What, what is a matrix approach for, for people? Because that's, that's unfamiliar to me. It may be unfamiliar to, to anybody else who's listening. Like, what do you mean? Oh, just um, 
a lot of different things that you throw in there. You know, it's almost like you're going to sit there and you're, you're like, all right, today I'm going to bake a cake, but I'm just going to try a bunch of different things. And I don't want to do the traditional form. And, but I, I think when it comes to healing, it's like a matrix approach would probably be, you know, if you have cancer, you, you talk to your doctors, you find out what are all the treatments. Sometimes people think it's just chemotherapy and radiation. But my understanding is it's bigger than that. There are other aspects that can be brought in for treatments um, to complement the radiation and the chemotherapy. And the matrix approach I used was that I had to find like um, there were some medications I tried. Um, those didn't always work so well for me. But again, everybody's going to have to find what works for them. I did group therapy, the traditional CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but the best, but the best approach for me was what I called that social engagement therapy, where I was meeting all these strangers. And I guess, you know, let me even clarify too. I, I've used the the term hero's journey, and some some for some folks that might not be very familiar. It's a literary theme that came from an author from about 60 years ago. I learned about this at Indiana University, actually, back in the 90s. I never thought I would use it in my life to, to save my life. And really, that hero's journey, it's, it's been used in, like, Star Wars, The Lion King, The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. It's, it's basically you have that call to action. You go out on an adventure. You face down your fears. You overcome your challenges and you come home transformed and triumphant. And that therapy for me going on that hero's journey is what's been helping me a lot because I am, as I said, I've gone out, I've, I faced down my fears. I didn't want to be around people after this trauma. And if you talk to my uh, mental health care team, a lot of us that go through a trauma like this and have PTSD, the last thing you want to do is be around human beings. You're, you're distrusting of many of them. You have hypervigilance. You're always on guard. So <laughs> this journey I was on was helping me face down those fears, and it was helping me overcome challenges. But I, it, it was a variety of things that was helpful for me. Um, it wasn't just one. How did you kind of harness uh, or access the courage of the bravery to put yourself out there? Uh, to groups of people, like you said, I mean, you, the last thing you want to do is talk about it. Uh, you're, you're as a trauma survivor, you're in a state of hypervigilance. A lot of times, like there's a considerable amount of bravery that went into that process. What did you have to, what did you do to be able to access that and bring it forth? Don, I mean, I believe that that shows the power of that moment of hope I had. It was at 10 44 mm. PM on November 2nd, 2015 for me to have that moment of laughter to stop me from dying by suicide. That's how powerful it was. That gave me, I guess you could say the courage, the fortitude to say, I can do this. If I could be kept alive that night, I certainly could figure out how to get to this symbolic goal in New York City and face down those fears. And that for me, that just shows you the power of a moment of hope. If you And, and, and it's all around us. I think people miss, they're always looking for, you know, Sometimes it doesn't come in the form it came for me. It could come in the form of a friend. It could come in a form of a pet. You know, you, you find a dog that's running loose on the streets and, and that dog comes running up to you and jumps in your car and, and you adopt that dog. I mean, that could be the moment that changes your life and gives you the fortitude and the courage to go out and do something different. But that was what happened to me on that November 2nd, 2015 night. And it just, it gave me the courage to say, I can do this. Um, and it was as simple as that and probably as difficult for people to understand, but that's how powerful that moment was for me. 
I mean, I think the word hope, I mean, that's, there's few things is, is powerful and is poignant. So it makes a lot of sense. I've seen, uh, I saw a quote from you that, um, and I'd love you to explain it a little bit. You know, you mentioned um, in, a, in, in a couple of talks or so, you know, we're, we're all more than our diagnosis. Like, like what is, you know, like, like can, can you speak to that, you know, a little bit when you meet people who say I have a this or a that, or I am a this or a that, what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. I mean, and that's part of why I started off today and I told you like where I'm from and <laughs> we talked about, I went to Indiana university and I have, you know, four siblings and, because I am more than my diagnosis. I, I do have a family. I'm, I'm married now. Um, I, I, I'm, I am a lot more. I'm a writer. I'm, I'm a runner. I've been a runner for years. I've run five marathons and I did have to have surgery about nine or 10 months ago on my hip um, to reattach part of it. That actually stems 12 years ago, all this trauma I went through, I had complications in my hip and my running and it was brought back to that night. That's when it all began. So, you know, for me to even go out and run again, I told all the doctors that worked with me over these last nine or 10 months of recovery just from the hip injury, I said, I want to run another Chicago marathon. And so I am more than my diagnosis. I'm at some point, you know, I'm, my running is getting faster and faster. But yeah, I, I, each one of us, um, I think sometimes we can get bogged down in our trauma and we become that diagnosis. Mm. But we have to remind ourselves that we are a lot more. Um, sometimes some of us are moms or dads. We're, you know, we're neighbors, we're coworkers, we're volunteers at our church. We're volunteers at the, the festival down the street. So we have to keep reminding ourselves that we are a lot more than that diagnosis. I think sometimes for me, when I think about different diagnoses, um, it's like the best way a human being has to describe a collection of stuff like symptoms. It's like, Oh, post-traumatic stress disorder has these qualities and these characteristics. Somebody's experiencing all this. We're going to go ahead and give it a, this kind of like container for it because it, because it fits and there's commonalities around it. And, um, and I think that a lot of times like healing is like pulling the threads on, on those various, on those various things that create that, that little basket of, of things. And so when you, when you, say that we're more than our, our diagnosis, the thing that, the thing that rings, the rings for me is like, uh, is like the diagnosis isn't the thing that we are. It's just like a, it's a, it's a, it's essentially a, a, an experience that's shared by multiple people. And if I'm having an experience, I'm not, I'm not that experience, right? It's just an experience that's being had by, you know, by enough people that you can, that you can throw, you can label something, um, and language that, uh, that, that is familiar, but it's definitely not, uh, you know, not you. And, um, I think it's, I think it's awesome. You mentioned, uh, before we started, uh, started taping a huge component to healing being around spontaneity and, uh, that your process of, of recovery, um, spontaneity has been a, has been a, a, a key component in that. Would you mind talking a little bit about spontaneity and, and how you see spontaneity as a way to kind of move through, uh, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress trauma, or maybe even others? Sure. <laughs> maybe one of the best ways I can describe it is of all the reporters that have interviewed me over the years. And some of them are student like journalists um, doing three of them did a documentary. And actually, these three students did a great job. They got nominated for an Emmy Award. So 
some of the people that have come into my life are very talented, but one of the biggest questions I've been asked by anybody is, what am I going to say to Stephen Colbert when I finally get on the show? And I tell them I have no idea. <laughs> and that surprises everybody. And they said, now I've had eight years to think about it. And they said, come on, man, like after eight years, you would have thought you would have figured this out by now. <laughs> and I said, I really don't care to figure out like what I'm going to say. I'm going to let the moment guide me and I'm going to let the spontaneous moment just take over. And I, I feel like it's, it's a good way to share that right now with the question you asked me, just because we just have this tendency to always want to know, to prognosticate. If you watch the news every day, they're always asking, is, are, is there going to be a recession in six months? Um, who's going to be elected president next year? You know, everything's about what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And I just thought, why? And that's why a lot of people as of late, the last couple of years are starting to turn off the news. And this isn't a, it's not an indictment upon people in news business. They're doing their jobs. But people, you have to take that in, in, in small doses because the news is about prognostication. What's going to happen in the future for the most part, I think. And. The thing is, like, we just have to let it happen spontaneously. Let's just enjoy the moment. And I just I don't want to know what I'm going to say to Stephen Colbert. I just don't because it's it's I wanted to make it special, you know, like on Christmas. It's so exciting for people that celebrate Christmas, like when they open up a present or on a birthday, when somebody opens up a present, it's beautiful because you don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> and I think that that's why trauma is so just difficult for us to just deal with because it's so unexpected. And when it happens, we feel like we should have done something to prevent it. And if I go back to the news, the news would often say, what could have been done to prevent this tragedy? I get it, but it happened. You know, let's, let's try and focus maybe our efforts on helping the people that went through this trauma, because after about one or two months after the trauma, people are forgotten. And the people in Parkland, Florida, and the people in, now I can't even think of it, the, the shooting that happened in West Texas um, yeah. at that school, like people forget about them. Yeah, they'll come back on the anniversaries, but what about the times in between? You know, and, and, and again, if we can go back to spontaneity and say, okay, let's just, let's just enjoy today. Let's enjoy this moment because um, that's all we have. And people that have been through traumas know this very, very well that we're not going to start planning for things maybe six months ahead of time. Will we do it? Yes. Will we put as much effort in, into it? Probably not because we're more into the today. So yeah, I do think spontaneity is, is really important for people to embrace. Do you think as survivors of trauma, is there uh, some aspect of when I've experienced a, a significant trauma, like I'm seeking for surety, for security, for stability, for like sameness. And it's kind of like protect and spontaneity is like a way to, is a way to, to kind of like unravel that a little bit and, and enjoy like what is unknown because you know, it's, it, I, I hallucinate, I don't know, but my hallucination would be if I suffer a trauma, then I'm trying to figure out a way to control my environment. And that's, that's the opposite of, of, of healing in that particular way. So I'm, I'm making stuff up. I'm interested in your perspective, your perspective on, on it. Yeah. And it's interesting. Did you ask that because there was um, a journalist that just asked about this question and I responded and I'm not sure she'll use me as a source, but if she does, I hope it'll be beneficial to people. Um, she said, what can we do <laughs> 
what can we do to prepare for, it was interesting because it seemed very oxymoronic. What can we do to prepare for the unexpected? And I thought, go back and look at that. How do you prepare for the unexpected? But there are people out there like survivalists. There are people that say, hey, if a if a gunman or a gunwoman, somebody walks into your school or this, there are ways to, to, to react. But the thing is, for the most part, there aren't. I mean, because you could train somebody. I know police officers that I've met on this journey that have signed stories on the boards I have. They were well-trained for years. And they went into a moment that was very tragic. And, and they said they froze. And that's okay because your brain, when you go into a traumatic moment, you're going to go through fight flight or freeze, sometimes all three. And in that night when I was raped and I was beaten, I went through all three actually. There were three moments very distinct that I can go back and I can, it gives me chills as I'm talking to you because I remember that. Your brain, your instincts are gonna take over, your adrenaline and your brain is gonna take over. So yes, you could have the greatest training in the world. Can it help? I'm not gonna say it won't. But the thing is for the most part, for all of us that are not extensively trained for tragedies to happen, our brains will take over and, and there's no wrong or right way to respond to a trauma. And, and, and Tom, I've had some people in the journey say, like for me, at one point, I ran towards my seventh floor balcony to make the phone call for the help while I was trying to fend these guys off. And I had somebody say, well, why didn't you run to the door? It was closer because I showed like a picture of where, where this was all at. And, and I remember thinking, oh, gosh, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> when you go, it's like asking somebody in Walmart in El Paso. Um, I think it was like five years ago. There was that shooting that killed, I think, 20 some people. You know, never ask somebody in that Walmart. Why didn't you duck behind here? Why didn't you do that? You know, right. again, your instincts will take over. And whatever you do at that moment, your brain thinks is the best way to protect you. So, you know, I don't ever like to hear people second guess somebody in a traumatic moment. It's tough, but. Yeah, it, your brain's going to take over for the most part. Have you had to be flexible in this uh, in this this healing process in the last you know call it seven years or so, seven and a half, eight years since the since you've you kind of snapped to and begin this this second part of second act of your journey? I mean, it's I think Elsa from Frozen. She sang that song, "Let It Go, Let It Go." Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I love that song. I love that movie, but. We do just, I had to like to be flexible. I had to let it go. I had to, honestly, one of the biggest things I had to let go what everybody else thought about my life Mm. because there there were a lot of people after about, after about six months or a year, even some of my good friends said, Hey dude, I know you're trying to get on a TV show um, for five minutes in New York and you know, it made you laugh and you know, stopped you from something bad that night. And there were some friends that even said, dude, but you got to get on with your life, man. And, you know, we want you to get a full time job. We, you know, what are you doing for retirement? What do you do again, Tom? They're starting to go back to this structured life. Honestly, if I have to <laughs> if I have to rent a room for the rest of my life and still try and get on the show, that's what I'm going to do, because it means that much to me. And for some reason, when you asked about the flexibility, I I had to be flexible enough to say, you guys are my friends. You guys know me. But. You know, I'm going to be flexible in the sense that this is what works for me. And this is important to me. I have a purpose in life. I've met people on this journey, Tom, that, you know, are in their 50s, 60s, 70s. They're, some of them are retired. Some of them are getting ready to retire. But numerous folks have told me they wish they were me. And I said, why? And they said, because you have a purpose in your life. And I said, okay, but you also have $1.3 million in the bank. You told me you're ready to retire. Your home's paid off. 
I don't have all that because I wanted to see how they'd react. I'm okay with not having that. Right. But oftentimes they've said, you know, I wish I had this purpose. And I said, but why do you have to be me? Why do you, you know, you can have a purpose. Why, you know, but again, that's where I had to be flexible and say, okay, I don't need to live this rigid life. I don't need to be structured. I need to have, I need to keep doing what makes me happy. I have to let it go. I have to let go what society expects of me. And the times in my life when I'm not happy are when I lean towards the expectations of society, what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to be. For some reason, this journey has gone eight years and it's working. I mean, <laughs> I literally like tonight, I'm going to go to a huge festival in downtown Phoenix. and I'm going to meet for hours, all kinds of people. And I, the exciting part is I know I'm going to come home at 10 or 11 tonight. Yeah. It's going to be 112 degrees out when I go, but, <laughs> but I'm going to come home and I'll bet I'm going to have several dozen more strangers that I will have met. That's to me, that's so exciting. So before I go to bed tonight, I'm going to meet anywhere from two to four dozen strangers that are going to impact my life. And the hope is I'll impact their life. That's, I mean, what an experience. That's absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's a beautiful way to, to choose to, to choose to engage with, uh, with life. So are you, and I love, by the way, flexibility is a way to, to nobody has ever approached that the question of flexibility is a way to, to still take a stand for what's important to them and to buck convention. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that was amazing. Um, and then have you been kind of like, is there a support group that you tap into uh, still, or are you kind of like lone wolf with this, with this whole process? What, what is that? Sometimes I do feel like a lone wolf because, um, but a lot of us that do like, do what I said, like you, you push back against society and say, I'm going to do it my own way. I think a lot of times we are sort of lone wolves in that way, but I do have a support group. I mean, my family's there, my spouse, my uh, friends, they'll check in with me, but I also have, it's called the Arizona Coalition to End Sexual and Domestic Violence, a real long title, but it's a, it's a huge network of survivors of rape and domestic violence in Arizona. Every state has a coalition and wow, they've been incredibly supportive. I'm on their speakers bureau for the last five years. Um, if ever I run into trouble, especially with the, uh, the sexual and domestic violence part of it, they, I can tap into them. They have a lot of advocates. Um, there's a family advocacy center here in Phoenix. A lot, of, I think a lot of cities have something similar to that. So, um, yeah, th those guys have been really good to me. That whole massive network. If you were going to share something with someone who maybe, you know, they're not on the, on the scale of disassociative amnesia because then they wouldn't, you know, this wouldn't resonate at all, but they are in that position of they've experienced something. And they're holding on, uh, they're holding on to it. And they don't know where to start and they don't really know, but they have all the shame, guilt, feelings, all of the anger, all of that. And there's no way for them. They don't know the path to kind of express. How would you, what would you say to them to, for them to be able to take that initial risk to, to come out into the open and, and be, you know, and, and begin the process of moving through? Well, I mean, I wrote something. I, I don't know if we can share this with them. Um, if there was a way that visually you could share a link with some people um, later on. But um, I wrote two guest commentaries. One was for the Arizona Republic. It's our, our big newspaper in the state of Arizona. Um, and I wrote one for Indiana University. They have a newspaper they've had for many, many, many decades. 
Um, and I did that just a couple months ago and they were both published. And then the one in the Arizona Republic made it to Yahoo News. It got shared on their network. And then USA Today shared it all over the country. But those guest commentaries, I guess that's what I would want to share with somebody. Like with the first step to take, I said, because I explained in this in about 700 words or less in both of those guest commentaries, I explained what you were asking about. What do you do? How do you start? And one of them was called like the hero's journey. And the other one was um, the one that went in the USA Today network was about what I did to, to start talking like the background I have. And, and it, I think it could especially resonate with the boys and men out there because, well, I'm not a girl, I'm not a woman, so I can't speak to that. But I do know guys, traditionally, it's a lot, lot harder for us because again, society expects us to buck up and not talk about this stuff. At least with women, they think, okay, you can talk about it. And for women, they tend to live longer than men because of that reason. They, they speak about their traumas. They speak about difficulties. Guys will bottle up. So I would, you know, at some point, if you could share those links with people, I think it'd be amazing because it, it really, I think it could set, because um, I said in the one, I said, I want you to go out on your very own hero's journey. Don't just go out on my hero's journey. Go out on your own. And I'll give you the groundwork and lay it for you. But it, it usually starts with telling one person what happened. And like for me, when I went to Facebook and I opened up, I put one post out and it helped because then I got, I think, almost 200 responses back. And on that day, there was nothing negative. Everybody was positive. But it also shows you that when you take that first step, it's like with cancer. I, I know I've met guys before that I know them in my life. They don't want to go to the doctor because I've heard some guys say, I'm afraid I might have a tumor. I'm afraid I might have a problem. So you're just going to sit here for the next six months and, <laughs> and not do anything. So I think in, in some ways it's the same with like a trauma. If you don't do something, there's decent odds. It's going to kill you. It could be by suicide. It could be by drinking and it could be by drugs. Like I started getting... I became dependent on uh, prescription sleeping pills. Mm -hmm. And in about seven or eight years ago, the doctors were, they were giving me like those Pez dispensers. <laughs> I laugh about it because it was like in a Pez kind of way, all those doctors yeah. seven, eight, nine years ago were giving me pain meds, oxycodone, everything. And that was because I did have physical injuries that I was recovering from. But guess what, Tom? I started using those because it made me feel good. Like up right. here. And so, you know, I could have eased, and that's what I was going to take the night to die by suicide, all those pain meds. So if you don't talk about it, you don't take that first step to tell one person about it. It's tough, man. It's like you won't even go to the doctor to get your chemotherapy. You're not going to get better. You just won't. And um, so that's why I thought those two links could be really powerful for people to see. It might give them a pathway and share the pathway that worked really well for me. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, Ron, for uh, spending time with us. So, Ron Blake, Blake, how can our people get a hold of you if they need to, if they reach out or they have any questions? What's the best way? Um, I mean, people can email me. My email is rblake5551 at hotmail.com. I know that's a lot of people are reaching out to me that way when I wrote those guest commentaries all over the country, the people in West Virginia, Oregon, like they were emailing me. Um, so if there's some way I can help that way or just put Ron Blake Phoenix in a Google search and there's a lot that pops up 
hopefully there's going to be a lot of takeaway for people. It's not just going to tell you my story. It's if you go to that Google search, you'll have something to take away that can be beneficial, hopefully in your life. Um, so those would be two ways right there. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with us here today and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Look forward to seeing you on Colbert uh, one day. <laughs> Hopefully that happens. Yes. I, I'm still believing it will. I just can't yeah. tell when. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. All right. Take care. All right. This has been another episode of the Intentional Soul Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Remember to leave a five-star review if you found this content of value. And as always, I'm your host, Tom Ross, Master Practitioner of the Advanced Rapid Enlightenment Process and Rapid Enlightenment Process developed by Matthew Ferry. You can reach me at Tom at TomRossTalks.com and the website to engage and be a part of any classes, trainings, or sessions I have going on is www.TomRossTalks.com. Until next time, peace. Peace.